Hey everybody, it's Megan Reardon Jarvis. Before we get started today, I wanted to tell you a little bit about my guest, Dina Gatchman. She is an award-winning journalist, a Pulitzer Center grantee, and a frequent contributor to the New York Times, Texas Monthly, Vox, Teen Vogue, and more. Her second book, which is what we talk about in our podcast today, So Sorry for Your Loss, How I Learned to Live with Grief and Other Grave Concerns, was published in the U.S. and the U.K. this year. She's a best-selling ghostwriter and writes a monthly column, a monthly movie column for the New York Times. She lives near Austin, Texas with her husband and her son. So grateful to have her today. I think you're going to love this episode. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am really delighted to be sitting down with Dina Gashman today. Dina, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I feel like you and I are a little bit like old friends because we've been talking both in per- well over phones mm-hmm. and over the internet about grief stuff for a little while. And I yeah. just said to you off microphone, I absolutely adored your book. So I am so grateful to have you on today Thank you. to talk about it. Yeah, there's a lot of memoir. There's a lot of clinical books. Not everyone makes me laugh out loud and your book multiple times made me laugh out loud. And I think that's only a tribute to your writing, but also a tribute to the spirit in which you come into this conversation. So I'm going to have you start the way I start the podcast always, which is to just let our listeners know how you come into the world of grief and loss. So my experience with grief, deep grief, because I lost grandparents and I was devastated, but started, my mom was diagnosed in 2015 with stage four colon cancer. And I didn't realize until many years later, that was the beginning of deep grief for me. I think we were all like many people in denial, like she's going to make it, but she died in the fall of 2018 after eight days of hospice, which was really um, terrible. And then two years later, my sister Jackie died of alcoholism. And so Jackie's was, although it was something we feared for years, it was a surprise call. So it was these two devastating back-to-back losses that we had in my family. And so that's really what spurred me to write about grief. Before that, I've been a writer my whole life, but never really focused on grief at all. Yeah. I, it just occurs to me, I haven't yet told the folks the title of your book. So can you go ahead and do that and just talk a little bit about how you started to write the book and where the ideas came from. Sure. So it's called So Sorry for Your Loss and the subtitles, How I Learned to Live with Grief and Other Grave Concerns. <laughs> and it's a book of essays that it touch. It is rooted in my own experience, but I weave in a lot of insight from experts and other people who talk about their loss. And there's chapters on hospice. There's a chapter on ambiguous loss, which we can talk about if you want loving an alcoholic, which is my case with my sister. There's a chapter on pet grief. So I wanted to write a book that really looked at uh, different aspects of grief because the journalist in me, I think, felt like, okay, if I'm in this crappy club and I'm, this grief has changed my world, then maybe I should just get in there and, and look straight at it. And so that was what spurred me to write it. After my mom died, I didn't, it was, I couldn't write about grief for a while. Yeah. And then a, a couple months after my sister died, I just, I had read amazing books and there are great books out there, but somebody had given me a, like a Zen quote book about grief. And I just, it was making me angry <laughs> and I kept putting it down. And I was like, I don't want to read about pretty flowers. I just, I want to be really angry. And so I wanted to put a book out there that, that had humor, but also was very raw and real and looked at grief as a journalist to just say, okay, what is this thing? And how do we handle it as humans basically is what I was trying to do. 
The title of the book is Genius, the cover of the book. So for we don't have visual here for people, but it's like the the words are on top of a casserole, mm-hmm. right? That's being handed over, which is it's just so clever and thoughtful. And it already has a little bit of snark, like mm-hmm. the title and the and I say snark with admiration, by the way. I come from a big <laughs> family where if you can undercut something that is heavy and hard with a mm-hmm. little bit of snark, I guess, something yeah. that that is irreverent and smart. And what I'll say to the listeners is I think, I don't think you go a page without doing that, without offering something both that's pretty brutal in the very beginning, you take us through your own moment by moment, particularly mm-hmm. with your sister, Jackie. Yeah. And, and also there are just these quick turns of phrases that are often twists on things that we normally hear Mm -hmm. And allow us to see this is all so completely absurd. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say that you couldn't write about grief when Mm -hmm. your mom died, could you write at all and just not about grief? Writing is your bread and butter. That's a good question. I, at the time when my mom died, I was working at at like advertising branded content agency. So I was writing, but it was a very different type of writing. Previous to that, I had done a ton of personal essays and wrote about my life much to my husband's dismay (laughs) because he's a very private person. So I was very used to that while she was sick. And then about a year after she died, I was doing, that was the creative writing. And I didn't write much of anything personal at all. I just didn't know it was too big. And I didn't know how to express it. And then about a year after she died, I wrote an essay about, we had this bond where we would watch Hollywood red carpets together every year. And my mom was hilarious and her commentary was hysterical. And so the first year after she died, when the Hollywood red carpets were happening, I was like, do I watch it? Do I not? Is it going to destroy me? Is it, is she going to curse me from heaven or wherever she is if I don't? So I ended up watching it and I wrote about an essay about that as it's how I learned about continuing bonds. and, And that was a way for me to stay connected to my mom. So I remember writing that essay and thinking, oh, okay, I can write again. Like I can do this again, like almost, okay, I'm back. I'm not scared of this anymore. So that was the first thing that pushed me into it. Can you just tell folks about continuing bonds? Because I think what you just described is like the instinctive process that a lot of people go through, Mm -hmm. right? Where they second guess themselves, particularly when it comes up to like, anniversaries or holidays. Do I make mom's cream yeah. cheese cookies? Do I not make them? Mm-hmm. How how do I go about this? And of course there's no right way, yeah, but yeah. I think it's helpful to hear what, how people do it. So can you just get into that a little bit? Yeah, basically it's, you know, one of the things that's been most interesting and helpful for me in grief is learning that the relationships don't end as they continue. I have a picture of Jackie right here and you can continue those relationships what, whether the continuing bond is like watching the red carpets. And for me, it's part of that is imagining the, the text my mom would send. Like I can conjure her voice in my head every year and it's, it keeps my bond with her alive. I feel like she's there. Some people might go to their parents' favorite baseball game every year, or they might go to somebody's favorite restaurant on their birthday or whatever that thing is that can keep you connected to them. And like you said, there's no right or wrong. And each year it may be different. And, and so for me, it's been that red carpet thing, but it just, it's some years I cry like this year, several years after she died, like a couple some of the years I'm fine. And then this year I just burst into this really painful cry. But then after 20 seconds, I was like, okay, I'm going to continue. I don't know what set me off. Who knows? The dresses were pretty, but I just think continuing bonds can be really a healthy way for you to, to feel like they're not gone. Obviously they are, but 
but they're going to, that relationship can live on if you find those ways to stay connected. And so it's been helpful for me. One of the things that I really love about your writing, although you don't come out and say this, is that there is an assumption that it's okay to feel the feelings. When we're talking about continuing bonds, which is, hey, look, you can take this living relationship and you can continue it, even though you are the only person who is still living. Mm -hmm. It's a little esoteric. It's a little out there, but grievers get it. Like we get it. I was watching the red carpet with my mom in mind. And therefore my mom was watching the red carpet with me. And I could Mm -hmm. imagine what she would say. What I, what I think is implied sometimes. So I want to say it out loud when people ask about these things or Mm -hmm. we're giving advice about these things Mm -hmm. is like, how do I do that so that I don't (laughs) feel bad? Like, how do I, I want to watch the red carpet and be happy about Mm -hmm. my mom. And you just very beautifully, and you do it in your writing, you're like, that's not really what we get to choose. No. You don't yeah. get to choose to be happy. It may feel happy. Mm-hmm. And for 20 seconds, it may feel sad. Or for two weeks, it may feel sad. Yeah. That's it's not a guarantee. Yeah, there's no guarantee. And I think that's one of the things that it's part of learning to live with grief, which is what it's all about, is understanding that like, yeah, it's not going to be like, oh, I, I wear my mom's bracelet, therefore I'm going to feel okay every day. Like it's not it's all over the place and you just have to accept that it's going to be all over the place. Like you may hear something on the radio that just sets you off in the middle of a Monday. It's just, that's how it goes. Can I ask this question? Do you do anything because am I right that you are, is it five or six years since your mom's death now? Five. Five. Okay. And I am four years out from my mom's death. And I think about this a lot. And then Some days I do what I'm about to describe and other days I don't. Do you have a conscious practice of thinking about Jackie or doing something with Jackie in mind or doing something with your mom in mind in terms of, I don't know, like we water our little garden every day. Mm -hmm. Do you have a conscious practice or do you wait for that energy to show up in your life? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I don't know if I have a conscious thing where I have, I have a friend who his brother died several years ago and his mom created this gorgeous garden and she has a Facebook page and she's constantly tending this garden. That's a very clear ritual that she does. So I don't have anything like that, but I think about him every single day, all the time, literally there's not a day that I don't. But I think for me, the, one of the rituals that I guess would be a conscious one is trying to teach my son about them because he was like 13 months old when my mom died. And then not that much older when my sister died. So he's not really going to remember them. And so I think my conscious practice is like telling him tons of stories and just, even if we're like eating a certain thing, I'll be like, Oh, Cece, which is my mom's grandmother name. Like Cece loved this dish. And so he's actually getting to know them through these stories. And it's really cute because he can, he'll say to me, just be like, Oh, Cece loved this. I'm like, yeah, it's working. (laughs) So I think if, if I have anything, it's that because yeah, he'll at least have some knowledge of them, if, if that seems like a practice. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think that's just a really hopeful thing for people to hear because I think we do miss our parents. We miss our people over yeah. time. And the notion, I don't know, that my mom's not going to see my daughter graduate mm-hmm. from high school yeah. is like enough to take me out at the knees sometimes. Yeah. Now, my kids were much older when my parents died, but being able to say, oh, my mother always gave everyone pearl earrings Mm -hmm. for their high school graduation. And my daughter in the car the other day was like, am I going to get pearl earrings from Nana? And I was like, I hadn't thought about that, but probably I should give you 
you'll never wear them because that's not your vibe, but she wouldn't that's have cared. Cool. Yeah, I won't care. Yeah. But I do think particularly when kids are little to hear what you're saying, which is you can share mm-hmm. your people and they yeah, can and- be known. Yeah. And I think instead of having the attitude of he's never going to know them and they can't see this and they can't see the milestones and all this. I just, I treat it as if I'm just helping him know them. And I feel like he, they are watching him. I feel like they, like, I do talk to them all the time and say, oh, mom, look what he's doing. And he lost his first tooth. Or I just, I try to keep it going because it just feels good to me, whether it seems crazy to other people. That's fine. I don't care. You, do you have two other sisters? Two other sisters. Are okay. And that's the whole, that's the whole family. Yeah. Four, so four ask, girls. And you can say to me, no, this is off limits, but I'm yeah. asking this mostly as a sister. Mm-hmm. How are you and your family navigating that space without your mom and your mm-hmm. sister? In it? How does that go? How does that work? How does it not work? It's well, we're a very close family and always have been. So that it definitely helped us through these losses. I couldn't, my mom's hospice, I could not have done without my sisters because my dad was so devastated at losing the love of his life. Like he couldn't, we had to get for medications and all this kind of stuff. So my sisters and I were like, a, like a crack team. Yeah. <laughs> so I could not have done it without them. And I think we just navigate it by, we each have our own little rituals or continuing bonds. Like one of my sisters sees butterflies and it's my mom or sister. And another one, like she does plant her flowers and think of my mom. So we each have our own ways, but we're very like open with each other. And my dad yeah. too, thank, thank goodness I'm, very fortunate that he went into grief therapy. He's still into grief therapy. He's very in touch with his emotions. Cause one of the fears I think, and I don't know if you had this, but like losing a parent is worrying about the other parent, right? So worrying about our dad and is his personality going to change? And are we going to lose him emotionally? And that was really scary, especially when my sister died. And he said, I don't think I'm going to make it through this one. He was, it was, a, it's scary. So I think we, honestly, we text him about 800 times a day <laughs> and we just stay very connected and um, I moved back to Texas not long after my mom died. I'd been living in California. One of the reasons was I just, I needed my sisters and dad. I just needed to be driving distance from them. And so for us, we navigate it just by staying really close and open with each other. But I like the open part too, which is, it sounds like if someone saw a butterfly, they might say, hey, look, it's Jackie's butterfly or mom's butterfly. Yeah. And I think you're pointing to something which we have lots of data on, which is that particularly with partners, there mm-hmm. is actually, there is a much more significant risk of death mm-hmm. after yeah. within the first two years after um, your partner's death. Yeah. So hearing that maybe one of the tasks of grieving was to surround your dad and get yeah. closer and tighter yes. together. And it sounds like that works for everybody. That's mm-hmm. what everybody craved. Cause it's sometimes one person wants a text thread every day yeah. talking about it. And another person is I'm getting off this text thread. Yeah. I want to be a part of this, but it sounds like for your family, there was a universal. Yes. We're very, I'm fortunate in that we're all very emotive yeah. people. I think growing up in a house with five women probably helps that. But I think that, yes, we're, there was, there's not one of us that's, I don't want to talk about this. I want to, it's, we're all very much in it together. And we all definitely surround my dad as much as possible and try to keep him busy. And and it's been very lucky for that. Cause I say this in the book, but like families can be broken apart by hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. Relationships take a big hit and families certainly can with everything from the stuff that's left behind Mm -hmm. to but also I say this to my sister a lot. I'm really close to my sister. My mom was Grand Central Station for communication. Yeah. It's a lot to 
call five siblings once a week. I'm lucky <laughs> if I get them once a month and I don't always get them once a month. So some of them, I get a lot of phone calls and the, and we are trying to be the telephone of, mm-hmm. oh, did you know that this one is doing this or this is happening? Because we used to really rely on my mom to do that. Mm-hmm. And without her there, the the messaging mm-hmm. and the communication <laughs> doesn't happen Yeah, in the same way. And that really impacts how the family feels. So I wanted to tell you this, that the, that the description of how you care, the hospice work in particular, I think mm-hmm. is so beautifully written. Thank you. It's something as a clinician I have heard, and it's something as a daughter I've experienced. Mm-hmm. So those, again, like your book made me really choke up and feel grateful and seen by the universality of things that we just don't generally talk about. Yeah. I've heard the story of what it's like to have these folks with you. And I think it's really surprising to people to discover that Mm -hmm. you end up being the nurses that end of life care in a home means you are managing them. The hospice nurse said it like six times to me. And I was like, no, but you're going to give the medicine. (laughs) She was like, we're going to give the medicine. And I was like, you're going to give the medicine. So it's really, I know that feeling. It's just really. And and I think you write in your book, wait, they were there 10 minutes and you were like, you mean, You'll be we here so, yeah, we were so unprepared and, and I have gotten emails from people just saying specifically about that chapter. Thank you for writing this because we don't talk about it enough. And it's, I don't think it's the fault of the nurses who are driving from house to house. I think it's the system that sets them up. It's like physicians today, right? It's you just go to as many houses as you can. And so you don't get that comfort. It's very clinical. And so it, it was a complete shock to us. And I knew I wanted to write about hospice before I even knew I wanted to write a book because I, it was just such a singular and horrible experience that I knew I wanted to write about that because I hadn't seen it written about a lot. And I also wanted humor in it because how else are you going to, how yeah. else are you going to deal with it and, and yeah, yeah. Be able to read about it? Yeah. I talk about in my uh, memoir, how the ho- my dad did that thing that is really common where the back of the throat slacks. And so mm-hmm. it sounds like they're moaning in pain, yes, but actually yeah. there's just noise as yeah. they're breathing, which I know now, but I didn't know then. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm in the grief and loss space, that sort of education more comes from the death space. And there yeah. are amazing folks like hospice nurse, Julie, that if you mm-hmm. follow yeah. But the hospice nurse said to me, he's not in pain. Do you want me to stick an, a fork in his arm? He won't flinch. And I was like, did you just say you're going to stick a fork in And I, for a minute, I was like, I might need you to stick a fork. She yeah. was like, I, I'll do it. And I was, it wasn't, she's like, she wasn't joking. That's and also hilarious. she seemed to be about 12. So all of it yeah. was just super surreal. Yeah, yeah. But, but what it makes me think about, and when I reread that chapter in preparation for our call today, It reminded me for the first time, I hadn't really thought about this, that when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was required to go to the hospital to take a class in order to have a baby in the Mm -hmm. hospital where we mocked a C-section. We dry ran, the, it was like a class, yeah. like yeah. my husband could put a, ba- a diaper on a rubber baby for the yeah. first time. And I was like, I have a lot of siblings. I don't need that dry <laughs> run, but it was a requirement and not a requirement. What are they going to do if I show up? And yeah. but it was highly recommended. It was, yeah. The things that they did was they put the woman on the floor mm-hmm. and then had other pregnant moms and dads there stand in the places where you know, the neonatal person would Mm -hmm. be and the person monitoring the heartbeat and the surgeon and the, 
And I remember sitting there being like, what am I doing this for? I'm never going to need this. Like I come Mm -hmm. from a long line of women who like birth babies and I had all three of my kids by C-section and I will never forget being so terrified, rolled into this hospital room, understanding that I was having a surgery and weeping with gratitude that I understood because even though I was mocking it and only half paying attention, I actually knew it was going to happen. And I was watching when I was reading your chapter again, imagine if they did that. Imagine if when you got a terminal diagnosis Mm -hmm. or a very serious diagnosis, like my dad was diagnosed with small cell cancer, which everybody understood to mean he was going to live about a year tops. Yeah. And imagine if when my brain wasn't hijacked in total fear, Mm -hmm. they were like, let's just give you a walkthrough of what this is going to look like. Instead, what happens is, you're, you've been crying for three days and people are in your house yes. and it's not just the hospice nurse. It's also your aunt Judy who won't go away. <laughs> and was asking if there's any tea and you're learning about how you are going to have to administer these unbelievable narcotics. It's just such an interesting thing that with birth, because birth is generally happy yes. or it's supposed to be happy. We front load all this shit here, do this. And and then afterwards you get this class and you can meet other moms and it's all Mm going to be good. Even though all moms know it is not all good. (laughs) And a class can't teach you everything. That's for sure. But just the notion of here are some things that actually are normal and we don't want you to be freaked out and we want you to know what resources. So I was really appreciative of the detail of that chapter because it really did mimic my experience and the experience that I've heard from so many people. Yeah. Which, this is how this crazy shit goes down. Yeah, Looks it is. Weird. It was just, I know the word traumatic thrown around, but I was a very traumatic experience to literally have no idea that you're going to be administering morphine to yeah. your mother and then just be told like on the night, Hey, right now let's, here's your stuff. And I'm not a doctor. And my sister and I were like, are we killing her? What are we doing? And right. So it's so terrifying. And I know that we could have talked to a palliative care physician earlier and we just didn't because I think we just wanted hope so badly, but I think maybe something like that could help. But I think talking to people way earlier, I think could help people a little bit. It's always going to be a shock probably. And it's always going to be hard, but just, yeah, to get that in your head of, okay, you may actually have to administer medications. It wouldn't have been so shocking. And like my anxiety was like through the roof and we did it somehow, but it was, it was, it would have helped to have, yeah, a little walkthrough. <laughs> yeah. We just have all this neuroscience about this with everything. Again, it's like why we have kids take classes about puberty. Yes. It's like you, not all this shit is going to happen to you. It's not all going to go down like this, but mm-hmm. we just want you to know that it could go down yeah. like this. And we just have a lot of neuroscience about that, that Mm -hmm. if you can give the brain something to see and imagine, Mm -hmm. it makes the whole predictive experience less crazy making Mm -hmm. because you don't feel like you're working, walking through a portal into a universe that nobody else lives in, (laughs) but you and your sister. That's a very good description. That's what it feels like. How many times have you heard a griever say, I didn't understand how the earth was still spinning on its axis? Yeah. I felt like we were like, it was, I remember it was beautiful weather that whole eight days we were in Houston. And I don't even know if I went outside at all really, but yes, it felt like the world outside was a totally separate entity. And we were just in this house and it was, we were just on a whole different plane. Like it just, it was so strange that feeling of being completely disconnected from the outside. 
literally disconnected. Mm -hmm. Like you're yeah. in this little bubble. And I yeah. think you mentioned it a minute ago with the Zen quotes where you were like, these are making me angry. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think there is the moments that you're doing the death part. Mm -hmm. And then there's the, you walk back into the world part where everyone yeah. seems to just be like reading the newspaper and going to, I remember watching like a UPS guy put boxes on my neighbor's mm -hmm. stoop and being like, fuck that guy who ordered shoes from Who's getting like, packages. I can't even imagine that. Like just yeah. the natural sort of reactivity that we end up, that sort of fight response that we end mm -hmm. up going back into of just, this is not right. None of this feels yeah. right. Yeah. I remember feeling very, it took me after my mom died about eight months to go into therapy because I thought I was handling it all. But I remember feeling like when I finally went into therapy, telling the therapist that I find my, I was so agitated about petty grievances. Like I couldn't take it. If somebody, if my husband was like, oh, my work day was hard. Like in my mind, I was like, fuck that. Can I cuss? Seriously. <laughs> yes, okay. please. I've but, okay. And, he, and the therapist was like, that's very natural in grief. Like you just have no tolerance for petty grievances at all, or somebody ordering shoes or just everything is just makes you angry because you're in this existence of this sucks. My person isn't here. So why are you shopping? <laughs> and right. eventually, and, hopefully you get over that. And your system, like your, your sensory overload is inside you. You are full up with the absence and the lack of. Mm -hmm. And so people walking around and they're like, oh, I don't really want pot roast for dinner. <laughs> Like I didn't slap people, but there was a moment to. where it was right before my mom's funeral. My, I grew up on Cape Cod. So we were like swimming in the ocean with my little kids. And I do need to say a good friend of mine from high school had told me to get a babysitter mm -hmm. that I was going to despise my children because they were going to be like sad for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then they were going to want to go get ice cream. And I didn't listen to him, even mm -hmm. though he knew better than I, because his wife had died. And we were swimming and I don't know what they were fighting about. They were kids doing something. And I, I stood up, people heard me miles down the beach where I was like, why can't you just fucking behave yourselves? My mom just died. <laughs> and that was the worst version because I did yeah. it to kids, but there were so many, I actually ended up having to have a signal with my husband mm -hmm. where I was like, look, I can take people up to six. And then I hate them and I might push them in front of a train. Like I just had such <laughs> violent yeah. intolerance mm -hmm. and I can talk about it in a funny way. I definitely did damage to relationships during that time. There were people, yeah. some of which I'm like, that's okay. And others of which I'm like, God, I wish I could have done a better job because you can't mm -hmm. come back from some of the way that I talked and behaved, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. But you but, just don't know. You don't know how you're going to react. It's you're just so in the moment, right? Those feelings. Well, and I, so I just big. couldn't do, I couldn't do a better job. And yeah. so I have some compassion for myself when I look back and I'm like, wow, that is not the way you normally are. You yeah, normally yeah. have more bandwidth, but my, yeah. just like my system, my central nervous mm -hmm. system was so full of my own pain Yeah, that somebody being like, can you hold this? I'd be like, what kind of a person would ask <laughs> me to hold this? Yep. I totally know that feeling and, right? and you're holding so much more, especially if you're working and you have kids and all this other stuff. And I remember feeling, okay, I'm going to go back to work. Cause at the time I had an office job and I was like, I'm going to go back to work. I'm going to be a mom. I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to handle it all. And meanwhile, you just don't realize how much you're carrying around. And we just don't get that space to just be like, I need to just sit with this for a while, not two days or five days or whatever the leave is, but you just don't realize how much is you're carrying around. And, and I feel that with, I call it the grief cry, the cries that are just like, some of the cries I've had 
especially over my mom. Like I thought they may kill me. Like they were so intense. If not kill me, then just make me stop breathing and pass out or something like just, I've never felt that before. And when I have bursts of it, like when I had it with the red carpet this past March or whatever month that was, you I had that cry and I was like, God, that's in me. Like that, those powerful emotions are just sitting inside of me and they just needed to burst out for 20, 30 seconds. And then I can go about, but it's a strange feeling to realize that's living inside of me. Yeah. All these days that and I'm walking around. Is, it's filling up and I'm yeah. not totally in touch with it probably because mm-hmm. it wants to feel all that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you already know that, that there is some data that the tears that you cry, that grief tears have protein in them? Do you know this? Already? Yes, I have heard this. Yeah. yeah. So like, I love that. Cause I'm mm-hmm. like, no, no, I know that felt awful, but mm-hmm. you were literally getting protein out of you that did not yeah. belong inside yeah. of you stuff that needs to come out. And I always love reminding people, cause most people haven't heard this, that the body has a trip switch, which is your vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. So even though you feel like, oh my God, it's, it's for some people, it's almost like they've taken a psychedelic. Like yeah. they're so on the edge of panic mm-hmm. and panic where it feels like the world is going to yeah. unthread. And if I yeah. keep how do I know that the world isn't going to unthread? And I won't say that never happens. There is a very small percentage. It's like less than one of people who have a psychotic break in grief. Yeah, yeah. But for most of us, what actually happens is the same thing that happens when a baby cries, which is it cries so hard. It cries itself to sleep. Yeah. Like we get totally exhausted. The vagus nerve makes us like feel stoned mm-hmm. and we fall into a really deep exhausted. Like I just hiked Kilimanjaro. Yeah. It is crazy how exhausting those cries yeah. are. Even if they're like, so short, you're just totally depleted. It's a really strange feeling. And I think makes you feel like, yeah, I did it. Like I worked yeah, it out. Yeah. yeah. I did it. I want to ask, so I have two different threads there. There is, you mentioned something and it just caught me about when your dad went to go see a grief counselor, the grief mm-hmm. counselor says to your dad, something that I think everybody in grief has heard, which is no sudden movements. Don't mm-hmm. make a lot of change. Don't yeah, move. Yeah. Don't cut your hair. Don't yeah. whatever. But you also said, I moved. Mm-hmm. I went, I moved back yeah. home. Do yeah. you have thoughts and feelings about that concept as a griever? I espoused that for mm-hmm. a long time. It, it also, we also hear it a lot in the world of recovery, like no sudden movements. You don't mm-hmm. need to pull a geographic yeah. But I feel different about it having grief. So I'm just curious if you have thoughts and feelings about that. Yeah, I think like anything in grief, there's not one right answer for anybody. But I think for me, it's something that we were living in Los Angeles. I'm from Texas originally. And we had been talking about it for a while just because having a kid there and so expensive and it was just getting crazy there. So it we had been on our minds anyway. But for me, it, it was definitely a very good sudden movement because I just, I needed my roots. I really did. And I dragged my husband kicking and screaming, (laughs) but now he has a pickup truck. So he's okay. I think he's turning Texan. We'll see. But so for me, it was a good sudden movement, Uh, but it is something that had been on our minds anyway. Yeah. But yeah, I think my dad's still in the same house. It's just, yeah, I think the no sudden movements as far as being like, oh, this will save me. Like I didn't have the attitude of, oh, moving back to Texas will save me and it'll cure me in my grief. I just wanted to be close to my dad and sisters, my nieces and nephews. So I didn't move as a curative thing. I just moved because I needed it in my heart. And so I think if you're doing something, thinking it's going to fix it, that's probably not a good idea. Like you say in recovery too. I remember my sister talking about that all the time because she was in and out constantly. 
that, yeah, don't, don't say I'm going to move to Canada and it's going to make me sober. Like it's, you just have to, you have to live with it wherever you are, but I think it depends on where the change is coming from, right? If it's just something you need in your heart, then it can't hurt. I was just really grateful that you both mentioned your dad's experience and partnered it with your own, because Mm -hmm. what I have found is that there's more nuance, even in the way we talk about that. Like I think grievers almost immediately, almost maybe like labor, like your body knows what to do. It might need help, but it knows how to get things started. I think grievers have instincts about what is right for them. Mm -hmm. And there are some things out there in the world that make it sound like, ooh, you're grieving wrong. If you're gonna, don't move, don't cut your hair, don't change your job. But I do think that butts up against what you're describing, which is, you know, my instinct was, I need to be close to my people. And it, and yeah, we were thinking about it anyway. So it's not like it was a totally illogical choice, Yeah. but I think for some people there's, oh, it's a force of running away. Mm-hmm. I can't handle this. So I'm just going to move to Tahiti, yeah. open a little surf shack and pretend none of this happened Yeah. versus what I think sometimes happens with grievers, which is I can't live in the same life I was in. Yeah. I have to cut my hair. I have to change my job. I'm yeah. not the same person. I need the outside to represent what the inside feels like. Mm -hmm. And I just, I really appreciated you writing about it because it made me think about the question again of, yes, there's no right way to do it. But Mm -hmm. also I think people do have some instincts about what it is that they need. Yeah. And And I think listening to that, instead of being like, oh, the literature says I shouldn't cut my hair or whatever it is. Or the grief therapist, because that yeah. I'm telling you, I was the grief therapist that was like, I think you should resist yeah. your your desire to move home to Texas. Like, yeah. I think you should stay here because that's what I taught. I was taught was the right thing was that mm-hmm. when people were doing those sorts of things, they represented impulsivity. Yeah. And as a griever now, I'm like a hurricane came, your house is destroyed. Mm-hmm. You can just move house or you can rebuild. Either, either one is a shit ton of work. Not one is better than the other. That's not. So I want to ask about the role of the book for you. Mm -hmm. Not everybody takes their experiences and creates or spends time in the grief process the way a writer does, Mm -hmm. right? It asks a lot of you to attend and remember I read a, a grief class. I have teach a grief class, which I think I've told you about, which is uh, it's writing and it's about process to product. But really what I'm teaching people is how to regulate their own trauma s- symptoms so that they can do some writing yeah. and create a narrative for themselves. Tell me about how you think about the book, like what it did for you, what it didn't do for you, how it helped, maybe how it didn't help. Oh, that's a big question. I think I've always written since like seventh grade. So it's always been the way that I process the world, my thoughts. There's that famous saying, I can't remember who said it, but I don't, this was it Nora Ephron. I can't remember, but I don't know. Or maybe who knows some female writer <laughs> who right. said, I don't know what I think until I put it yeah. on the page, uh, maybe Joan Didion, but so that's how I process life. And so I didn't, like I said before, I didn't set out to write a grief book, but once I had thought about what the kind of grief book I wanted, I wanted humor. I wanted experts. I wanted journalism. I wanted to look at culture. I threw myself into it, but what it gave me in one sense, and I've talked about this before, but my sister was very creative. Jackie was, but our relationship was so fraught because she was just for years and years in and out of rehabs and it was just a tough. So 
I felt like with the book, it was, she was writing it with me. Like I actually felt like she, she was my creative partner. And so it gave me that with her, which was a really sweet thing. It makes me want to cry thinking about it. Cause I would literally feel like she was with me and I would look at her picture and say, what do you think? And so it gave me like another aspect of my relationship with her that I think I always craved for decades that I just wanted so badly with her. And so that was one thing that was amazing. And it was, if I could get closer with my dad, I did. Cause I called him constantly just saying, dad, what do you remember about this day? Or can I interview about your experience? And so it gave me all these things. It also gave me, and I'm, I know that this for what you do is connection has been very meaningful to me in, in the pain of grief. And so whether I was talking to a mother who had lost a child or a psychologist or whoever it was like sharing our stories was so meaningful. And so that through the process of the book, it just, it made me think, okay, I'm doing something with this awful experience. And it was also very depleting. It was very, I cried a lot and walked with my dog who's sleeping under me <laughs> right now. But it's interesting. Like I, I think it helped me process things and gave me connection. But now that I'm a couple months out of the book being out in the world and it, it makes me wonder, am I, did I create a barrier to my, like how I would be experiencing this just naturally. So if I didn't write this book, what would I, where would I be in my grief? I have no idea because now I talk about it so much that it makes me wonder, am I immune to this? Am I just so used to talking about looking, seeing my sister in the coffin, like that it doesn't even phase me. So it's a weird feeling of not knowing where I would be in my grief if I didn't write the book, but what it has given me is still those connections of people reaching out. And that's pretty meaningful. I love the idea of co-creating it with Jackie. That choked me up. The idea that I know that in her addiction and her illness, mm -hmm. that she was, that there's a barrier in mm -hmm. closeness on account of that. You describe yeah. that, you talk about that. But the, the rabbi, Steve Leader, who I mentioned mm -hmm. uh, to yeah. you off mic a minute ago, he has a lot of, a lot of literature to help people create the continuing bonds. And one mm -hmm. of the things he talks about is, or he talked to me about on my podcast was once someone has died, they get the gift of showing up in their perfect form. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Don't you love that? Yes. And I, that every time that could make me cry because I just think of my mom and I went through periods where we were just knees and elbows. Like she yeah. would say something and I'm like, God, that's so narrow-minded. And she was always trying to show up with love. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I was just being an ass, but like her love <laughs> didn't always land the way that she wanted it to. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of, particularly in my twenties, a lot of like anger and apology mm -hmm. and the notion that she could just get it right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Isn't that beautiful? That's and really so, beautiful. Yeah. I know he's so wise. He's so good. And it's the gift of talking about grief and loss. I think is that I'm always in a tangential create creative, like of my own healing, mm -hmm. I think around some of the pain, but I really appreciate the curiosity of what, where would I be if I, because there's, if I, yeah, if I didn't do this and talk about it and put so much time and effort into it, yeah, I don't know, but I'm, I feel like I'm at a, I'm living with it and I'm fully embracing it, letting it in whenever it's going to come in, because that's just as many people before me have said, that just means there's a lot of love there. So I just let it come as it will. Cause I think it would be really hard to live with being terrified of that. Like you're holding off a lot of like love for the person. If you're really scared of the grief coming in, because it's going to come in some way or form. I actually met a woman 
on an airplane. I was flying in New York to do a book event and we were talking and she was telling me she was there to see her son. And she said, why am I there? And I said, I have this book. And she asked me what it's about. And I said, oh, it's about grief. And she goes, I will not be reading that. And I I wasn't mad because I knew what she meant. And she goes, I have so much grief and I just bottle it up and I push it down and I just can't read your book. And so I was like, okay, that's her thing. And at the end of the flight, she's, I am so sorry. (laughs) She was like, apologize. And I'm like, I get it. Like you do your thing, but I think I'll always wonder about her. I'll always wonder, is this woman ever going to look inside? Is she ever going to open up that bottle or whatever it is? Because I feel for her. Like it's, she just seemed so adamant that she just didn't even want to look at it. And so that seems like a really hard way to live. Yeah. I agree with you. And I think there is, I've said this, I I don't mean it glibly, but I think love and grief are under, are the undergirds of every conversation, Mm -hmm. every human experience. Mm -hmm. I do think there are people who, I don't know. I think there's this idea that like, you're supposed to go to a therapist right away and you're supposed Mm -hmm. to talk about your grief right away. I think there are people who 10 years later is when they process it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they do become an alcoholic first and Mm -hmm. that's the way that their grief has to draw their attention. And that for some people, their entire life does have to stop where they can pull the cork and the genie comes out and the pain. I think most of us would like to have something that felt more like a gentle stretching in the morning <laughs> grief, so that we yeah. did, I think, but I don't know, even in the world where I have lots of examples and know the things, I don't know that I believe that there's any right way forward. I think, mm-hmm. I think people have a lot of opinions about what is supposed to happen. And I think I have seen people's lives unfold where they do, they attend to grief immediately and that makes them worse mm-hmm. and they wait until much later in life and that makes it better. I, yeah. But I do, I do think the question about, I've seen some folks, let me say it like this. Like I have a good friend who started a grief podcast and she just, it was really popular. It's still like up there as, and she doesn't want to do it anymore because mm-hmm. she's not in like that tenant of grief. And I really, what I feel like with my book is there's no way I would have written it any, I couldn't even, I couldn't even write it now. If I started to write it now, I don't know that it would hold my emotional attention Mm -hmm. in the way that it did then, because I needed to understand myself and my own story better. I I needed it. And if I'm really brutally honest with myself, I just think I just needed my mom's death to matter more to mm-hmm. the rest of the world. Like I, I get I had that. somebody send me pictures when the queen died and they were like in London and they were like, Oh my God, can you believe this? And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, not only can I believe that I would have had that funeral for my mom. If they <laughs> let me, if they'd give me $6 billion, I would have yep. done it. Yeah, I would have too. But yeah, I think that resonates with me too, especially with Jackie, because I feel like a lot of, especially with alcoholics or people with substance abuse issues, they're so misunderstood and tossed off. And I feel like a lot of people probably would have looked at my sister and what's wrong with her. And I really wanted to like, part of my motivation for writing the book was trying to show people what she was, like you said about how the rabbi said, like her best self and for people to know her. and And it gives me a lot of joy when I think there's some random person I don't know out there reading about Jackie and getting this best version of her. And I love that. And it, but yeah, I don't think I could, I don't know how I would write the book now. And I don't think I'd want to write another grief book. Yeah. <laughs> honestly. Yeah. yeah. But at the time it, it was what I needed to do it. 
I did want to say to you, because again, I think I've read like every book out there on grief and loss. And I think a lot of the conversations that we're having are, it's almost like, which window are you looking out of? So when we're talking about people in recovery, we're really talking about trauma, grief, and loss. We're just talking about it, starting with the conversation of what substances are you using or what process addictions do you have? Mm -hmm. And I think when we're talking about racism, we're talking about grief and loss. And I think when we're talking about feminism, we're talking about misogyny, we're talking about grief, loss, but I have not read another book. I have not read another book that presents your sister that represents a character who dies from their disease with such compassion that we could have, that she could have had diabetes. Mm -hmm. It's not that you don't talk about her addiction and explain what it is, that there is not a single page in there that feels like blaming or shaming. Mm -hmm. And I work with a lot of folks who have been told that the thing that they are primarily is an addict. And that their addiction is, in fact, the most critical thing about them. And the trauma model that I work from is you have a strong addictive protector. Mm -hmm. That there is an emotional component to your life that is Mm -hmm. managed by this very strong. And you may not ever outmanage them. Yeah. And they're doing harm to your body in the effort of trying to protect you, protect you. Mm -hmm. But I really came away from your book with a lot of um, appreciation. I had somebody read it, even though they weren't coming to, I said, I want you to read how she writes about her sister, that this is what, when we lead with love, what it Mm -hmm. looks like and what it sounds like. So I just wanted to express appreciation because I don't. Thank you. There's not another book out there, I think, that writes with that kind of generosity. Um, that means the world to me, honestly. I That was my sister. When Jackie died, my youngest sister, I remember when she posted, and she said my sister was not her addictions. And I think that's where I was coming from is she was so much more than that. She was so sweet. And yes, I had so much like resentment and anger and pissed off and over the years, my God, how many times would I say to my parents, like, I'm done with her. I hate her. Like all of that. Absolutely. But we always loved her and my parents were the same. I think we took their example of, they just did everything they could and they knew when to create boundaries. But yeah, I just think that it's important to, for people to understand. It just drives me crazy when people are like, oh, they're, they have a choice. Why can't they just get it together? And I would think that about Jackie over the years, like, why can't she just get it together? But then you realize this is a, this is cancer or whatever name you're disease that people don't judge as much. So it, it, I definitely wanted to put her in the world as look at this sweet, compassionate person who came from an incredibly loving family. Like it could just be anybody just to have some compassion for those kind of deaths. Cause I think you hear about, oh, somebody's found in a hotel and you're like, ah, oh, it's just a throwaway person. You don't know. You don't know. They could have been a freaking Nobel peace winner <laughs> at some point. That's right. To me, it felt really important. It felt really, because there's, there are all those little sort of micro commentaries, even Mm -hmm. when someone is writing a book that is just about the profound pain of loving an addict, Mm -hmm. that story is really important. We just have a lot of those. Mm -hmm. What we don't have is the sort of compassionate way that you just give us her in a much more human way, I think. So I just loved that part. I, I, really deeply loved that part. Can you, just before we wrap up, 
again, there's a lot of humor. We didn't really highlight it, although I like I have 10,000 questions I didn't ask you and you know, <laughs> quotes from your book here that are sitting here. But what do you what do you do for the joy part? Right. Because that's in your book, the laughter yeah. and the funny and the joy. How do you seek that out? It does that. Do you wait for that energy to find you or do you create it? How does that show up in your life? I think that it's always been part of my life. And I, and a lot of that does come from my mom. I think I talk about this in the book, but my mom really led with humor. She was very funny, but she always raised us to like laugh at yourself, keep your sense of humor. She had a kind of a little bit of a dark sense of humor. Like she was this cute little Texas woman, but like John Waters serial mom was like one of her favorite movies, which if you don't know is about like a, a suburban housewife who starts murdering people. So that just tells you. Uh, her dark sense of humor. So she raised us to, to remember that. And I think that it's just a way to, to cope and not in a way that you're like hiding your harder feelings, but I think it helps me process pain and grief is to have those moments of humor where it's okay. It's okay to laugh. Like the hospice chapter has a lot of humor in it because we had to laugh. Like we were so crazy, devastated that we, we weren't laughing like during the eight days necessarily, but like afterwards, we just would tell stories and just have to laugh. And so I, to me, it's very helpful. And I don't know, also being like Jewish, I think that's part of our heritage is just having (laughs) this humor to get through everything. So it's just, I feel like it's a way to live that feels healthy to me is to remember it's okay to have your sense of humor and to always keep it. And you don't need to make inappropriate jokes, like as a coffin's being lowered, but it's okay to have that. And, and it balances it out. I, it feels to me like also what a lovely thing to talk about for people who are living right now and raising little people to have the testimony of your mother having a great sense of humor mm. is a legacy that you carry yeah. just because it was important and it helps you through tough times. Amen to all of that, right? Yeah, like, I'm very grateful for that. So great. Yeah. Can you tell us what you are up to now? We'll put everything in the show notes. There'll be a nice bio, but is there anything that you want us to know that you're working on or how to find you or where to look for you? So I'm working on a bunch of articles. I just had a piece come out in Texas Monthly that it actually is about grief. I keep saying I'm not going to write about grief and then it keeps pulling me back. Well, grief may have different decisions. It, yes, that. it keeps pulling me back, but it was it's about a musician in Texas, a father who lost his son and he's using music as a way to process his grief. So that was basically, I spent the whole summer on it. It was very emotional. So that's out now. And then I'm working actually right after this, I'm going to a horse ranch where they save horses. So I'm writing about that because there's a lot of like horses that get abandoned in Texas. And so I'm always working on, are they there? Do they become therapy horses? Some of them do. It's interesting because two of the women I'm talking to were lawyers and then they got into this and just, it became like their life's work. So I thought that was an interesting connection, but So I'm working on a bunch of articles. I have the Texas book festival coming up and brainstorming a book, my next book. So trying to figure that out. Please stay in. Let me say this in my memoir. I talk about equine therapy and how important it was. Amazing. Even though I was like, equine therapy is bullshit. I know it's not going to work. And then it It totally sounds pretty amazing. Yeah, I was amazing. I just decided I had grown up with horses and it wasn't going to have any impact on me. And then I was like, what's happening? These horses are doing their job. What happens when you're pretty sick? Anyway, I can't wait to talk to you again. Yes, I, indeed. Yeah, I feel like I could talk to you for 12 hours. Me but too, me I too. Thank, thank you so much for this hour. Thank you, Megan. I loved it. Thank okay. you for having me. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.